We are going to continue on in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been looking at the Beatitudes. We're about to embark on our third Beatitude. I know we've been taking our time, uh, and certainly as opportunity presents itself, uh, it's an even longer amount of time. Uh, But I'm very thankful for the opportunity to be able to preach here this morning. Uh, And I appreciate Rick teaching my class this morning as well. Uh, So it was great to have him and equip and uh, get a different perspective uh, on Ezekiel. So this morning, as we look at the Beatitudes, and we're going to get into them in just a minute, so you can go ahead and take your Bible there in in Matthew chapter 5. But um, just want to remind us of a couple of things as we get into this passage. We've said time and again, as we've looked at this, that we want to be careful how we approach uh, uh, these Beatitude statements. These are um, really characteristics of those who are a part of God's kingdom. And so when we look at these Beatitudes, they should strike us as uh, kind of countercultural to what we would expect to find uh, in our fleshly or in our sinful uh, thoughts, right? From a worldly perspective, uh, they don't make a whole lot of sense. But as we've looked uh, and seen that, uh, you know, that's exactly how Christ's kingdom is. It's very uh, counter to what the world presents as uh, the way of blessing or the way of happiness in this life, right? And so as we look at these, one, we want to be careful not to turn these into some sort of formula to earn us some sort of favor with God. Uh, we always look at these, and Christ pronounces these to his disciples as uh, this is just the character of those who are a part of the kingdom of God. And so the degree to which we exercise these as believers is the degree to which we are allowing the Spirit to work in us and through us, uh, right? And so we can definitely look at these and say, you know, am I exhibiting these characters, uh, characteristics, but we don't look at these characteristics to say, am I exhibiting these, and therefore, you know, am I earning favor with God and he's going to save me? So we want to make sure we understand, we get this in the right order. God's sal- salvation work having been done, he ushers this into the kingdom, and as a result, this is that sanctification flowing out of us, whereby we are exercising these, and this becomes our character. And so we also saw that, you know, on the surface, if we just look at these, uh, you know, on the surface, it can be a little bit uh, confusing, right? Um, so we've seen that there's a spiritual element to these characteristics. Um, Jesus is not saying in verse 3 that, you know, those who are poor are uniquely blessed or, you know, have some uh, unique favor from God, nor is he saying that those who are sad uh, experience that. It's not simply a physical, uh, outside thing that he is pointing to. And so we've seen that in each of the Beatitudes so far, there is a spiritual element to them. Um, And so we have to take that into account. And as we look at the rest of the Beatitudes, we're going to find that that's going to continue. We're going to have a little bit of a shift in the perspective, though, as we move into this third one. This first two of the Beatitudes have been mostly focused on ourselves and how we view ourselves. As we progress on in this third and on into the fourth and so on, we're going to see that the shift, uh, the view is going to take a little bit of a, a different perspective as we begin to look outward and upward with these characteristics. So with all that in mind, we're going to read the passage and then we're going to narrow in on verse five. So seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to stop there, and we're going to narrow in on verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Before we get into it, let's open with a little word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for how you have preserved it for us and how you have, uh, Lord, uh, made it so clear. You have revealed yourself. Uh, You have revealed your plan of redemption. Uh, You have shown us your son. You have shown us all that you have uh, given to us through your son. Lord, I pray that this morning as we look at these passages, that, Lord, we would uh, understand them properly. Uh, Lord, that we would apply them, um, Lord, to our own lives as your spirit uh, directs it. And Lord, I pray that we would uh, just have a humility and a love for one another as we look at these passages. May it cause us to grow in our love for you and in our Christ-likeness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth As we said, this is a little bit of a shift of focus. Uh, If we remember, for those of you who are here, and if you're not, you can always go back and listen to the previous sermons that we've looked at. uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. Uh, But primarily, as we've looked at those, they have been, like I said, focused on us. We see ourselves as spiritually bankrupt, right? This is, again, not just speaking about financially poor, but poor in spirit, So we see ourselves as spiritually bankrupt, and that causes us to mourn over the sin that is in our lives and over the condition that we find ourselves in. As MacArthur put it, we see a logical sequence and progression in the Beatitudes. Being poor in spirit causes us to turn away from ourselves in mourning, and meekness causes us to turn towards God and seeking his righteousness. And so that gives you an idea of where we're at and where we're going to be headed as we continue to look at these. But Jesus has said, Jesus said the citizens of his kingdom will be marked by meekness. Meekness is probably not something we talk about in our everyday lives. It may not be a characteristic that uh, you know we used to describe very many people. And so it's probably worthwhile taking a little bit of time this morning just understanding what exactly meekness is. And as we look for that definition, we want to be careful to define it scripturally, biblically, rather than just you know our own perception of it. And so we're going to take a little bit of time to understand how the word's being used and what is meant as we look at this term meekness. And then as we progress through, we're going to look at some examples in the Bible of meekness in action so we can get an idea of what it looks like. And then I'm just going to give us some practical um, scriptural uh, ideas to help us grow in our meekness. Uh, And then ultimately, we're going to look finally at what is the result of those who are meek, Uh, And that's obviously the blessing of inheriting the earth. So with all that in mind, that's where we're headed. Um, But we want to look a little bit more about what meekness is and how the word is used. The Greek term here uh, really has to do with something that is mild. It was used sometimes to describe a soft breeze. 
um, uh, you know, the idea of something that is soft to it. We can see also uh, other ways that it's translated. For example, First Peter, when Peter is writing and he's talking to uh, Christian women and he's giving them instruction on how they are to conduct themselves, he says in First Peter 3, 3, do not let your adorning be external, braiding of hair, putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, but in verse 4, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. That um, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle, and that's the same word that's translated in our passage in Matthew as meek, uh, the, the perishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. In fact, if you have a different translation, um, it's used, it's translated differently based on some different translations. In ESV, King James, it's, it's uh, translated as, uh, you know, obviously our word meek. Uh, but it's also translated as gentle or humble in other translations. We see the same idea of humility and gentleness in Matthew. Um, when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, you remember that Palm Sunday, right? When, when he's entering the city and all the people are crying out Hosanna. And there's that quote from Zechariah 9.9 where it says, Behold, your king is coming to you humble. That's that same word that Matthew is used here in Matthew 5 that he's using later on in chapter 21 to speak of Christ coming in humble, mounted on a donkey. In fact, Jesus uses it to describe himself in Matthew chapter 11. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle, that same word here, meek uh, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So we get a sense from some of these passages, and there's obviously other passages we could go and look at, um, but idea, uh, the idea here is someone who is uh, quiet, someone who is gentle, someone who is uh, humble, um, you know, and that's the description that we get of someone who is meek. And to that audience who would have listened in on that conversation. Again, remember that the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is primarily addressing his disciples, but there is a larger crowd there that is uh, overhearing all that he has to say, and Jesus will alternately address some of his disciples directly, but then the larger crowd as well. And so you have here people who are listening to this, and Jesus is saying, hey, uh, the happy life, again, we want to qualify that, right? It's not happiness as the world defines it, because the world wants to say happiness is being rich and being healthy and having all these things and having a life of ease. And we know, biblically speaking, uh, that uh, happiness is much deeper than that when it comes to how God defines happiness and joy and satisfaction, right? Uh, but you know, you can imagine Jesus, this great teacher, sitting down. He's the rabbi there, and that would have been the custom for rabbis to sit and to begin to teach. You can imagine the crowd kind of listening in as he gets ready to kind of, you know, dispense that wisdom, dispense that teaching. Uh, he's get garnered a lot of following and popularity, and he begins with saying, blessed, all right, happy, here's the secret to, to uh, you know, all the things that we want uh, in our society, right? And he immediately starts off with poor in spirit, mourning, and then meekness. And again, I, you know, you could almost collectively see the shoulders sag in that audience as he begins to lay out these attitudes because it seems so uh, unexpected and really maybe disappointing to so many in that crowd. 
Uh, they might have expected for him to say, blessed are those who will, you know, stand up for themselves and who will, you know, uh, exert their power and will take back their rights and things like that. And then you'll be happy because you'll finally have uh, what you deserve. And that was very much the mentality of the people of Jesus' day, the, the Jewish audience and specifically the Pharisees that would have heard this teaching. They were under Roman oppression And they were longing for deliverance from that oppression. And there were zealots whose goal was to overthrow that government and to cast off that that oppression. And they were looking for vindication. They were looking for someone to really just, you know, make everything right. You know, all these other nations have taken advantage of of those people. And so, you know, uh, as the people of God, they had a right and expectation to be able to be above everyone else. And so... Uh, many of them had kind of projected their own idea of power and control and, you know, setting themselves up. They had projected that idea onto what they expected from their Messiah. And so as they're listening in there and they're wondering if Jesus is this long-promised Messiah, again, you can see the shoulder sag as he's talking of meekness and humility and gentleness, when that's probably the last thing on any of their minds uh, as they think about how uh, they have been oppressed and how they have been put down. And they're looking for a Messiah who will come in and, and say, hey, you know, enough of picking on my people. It's time for me to squash everybody else and time for me to make sure everybody recognizes all, all who my people are and recognizes my authority. And, and then, you know, I can put down all these things and, and they can kind of lord it over everyone else. You get the idea that um, rather than seeking some sort of equality, they would have been just as happy for their Messiah to come and... Okay. <laughs> I didn't know if that was a cue. <laughs> uh, but I didn't, you know, they, they would have been almost as happy for their Messiah to come and, and turn the tables and let them oppress others rather than establish any sort of equality. So understand it would have been very countercultural to that audience because gone from their mind was the humble, suffering servant of Isaiah. It was instead an idol, really, of their own making. Unless we judge too harshly, we understand that that mentality hasn't died with the Pharisees, has it? Fact is, is our world very much still holds to that uh, ideal of, you know, grasping for power and wanting our own way and wanting to see ourselves elevated and cared for and waited on rather than serving in humility and exercising gentleness. And Jesus is saying that while that might be true in the world, it ought not to be true for those in his kingdom, for those who would call themselves Christians, who would be followers of Christ, who would be members of the body of Christ and in his church, that while that might mark the world, his kingdom will be marked by meekness. Now, We might cringe a little bit at this because all this talk of gentleness and softness and humility could give us this idea that, you know, this is just somebody who's just always a doormat. 
right? Is Jesus saying that, well, you know, blessed are the Christian doormats who just let everyone walk all over them and who have no spine, no backbone, no real, you know, conviction. I hope we all see that that is dripping with sarcasm, right? Because we know that's not the case. And as we're going to look at some examples in scriptures, what we're going to find is that meekness does not equal weakness, does it? But what it does exemplify and what we're going to see in the lives of some of those as we look at them in just a moment is that these are people who had tremendous authority, tremendous strength of character, even tremendous wealth and and ability to, to control aspects based on their position or based on their wealth. And yet they acted in humility and with gentleness. And so we see that meekness doesn't require weakness, but it does require humility and gentleness and a willingness, as William Hendrickson said it, a submissiveness under provocation and a willingness rather to suffer than to inflict injury. So, Getting a little bit of a flavor for meekness, let's look at some examples that will help us maybe understand a little bit more about what that is. Now, we don't have to turn to any passages. We're just going to talk, and I'm going to trust that you're, you're somewhat familiar with some of your uh, Old Testament scriptures. But we'll just look at a few examples of meekness uh, you know, that is exemplified for us. We could look at somebody like Joseph in Genesis, right? Joseph, who was uh, you know, thrown into that pit, Uh, by his jealous brothers, sold into slavery. He spends his time as a slave in Egypt, trying to do what's right, trying to help out his master and trying to honor God by doing what's right. And yet he's falsely accused of, uh, you know, attempted adultery and thrown into prison. And there he's left to rot until finally we know that the end, Joseph is able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams And Pharaoh then sets him up as the administrator of Egypt. The Bible tells us that next to Pharaoh, there was nobody that had had more power in Egypt than Joseph at that time. So here we have a man who has all the administrative power, all the political power, certainly any military power at his command. He's smart enough to be able to administer all of the complexities of Egypt and what it takes to run that empire. And when his brothers come to him, he's, of course, rubbing his hands finally. I've got the power. I've got the ability. I can take my revenge, right? No. What do we see in the life of Joseph? We see a submission to the sovereignty of God, don't we? Joseph, when he's confronted by his brothers, rather than seeking to take revenge, seeking to make them suffer in the way that he did, instead, He's gentle, he's kind, he's humble. He understands, he's looking at the sovereignty of God, he says, you meant it for evil, your, your intentions were evil, but God used this for good. And he sees his position as one not to take revenge, but as a rescuer, as, a, as the one who is there to preserve God's people. Moses, well-educated, grows up in the courts of Egypt. He 
leaves and he's, you know, uh, a shepherd and he establishes his own life and then God calls him back. And think about all of the attention that Moses is getting as he's there face to face with Pharaoh and as he's calling down the various plagues. And then as he leads the people out, you have millions of people exiting Egypt and, uh, you know, he's there as God uses, uh, you know, him to, to display his glory, not only against Egypt, but uh, delivering the people across the Red Sea. And then he has that, the elevated position of being on Mount Sinai, there one-on-one with God, being given the law, being given the Ten Commandments. And yet when his own siblings, Aaron and Miriam, try to overthrow his authority and challenge him. He doesn't pull the, do you know who I am card? Instead, Moses responds with humility. He doesn't even seek to defend himself. He doesn't seek to exert his authority and say, hey, listen, you know, this is me and you're not going to challenge my position. Instead, he again rests in the sovereignty of God and allows God to intervene on his behalf so that God then acts towards Miriam and Aaron. And Moses, as we see when God begins to judge them, intercedes on behalf of the very people that he was attacked by. Another great example of gentleness, of humility. David killed a giant. I think if any of us were to meet David face to face in those days, Weakness would probably be not, not be the first thing we would think of. This is a guy who not only slew a giant, but was a general, who led armies, who was a leader among men. He was definitely a man's man. And he had the added, uh, you know, kind of uh, authority that he was promised to be the next king. So he's anointed by God. He knows what God is going to do for him. He's going to be the next king. He has all this uh, physical strength and obviously political influence. He can probably lead an uprising and find a lot of people and maybe throw things into a civil war and just take the throne for himself if he wants. And yet we see in David's life a constant submission to God's sovereignty. God will raise David up in God's timing, not in David's timing. And so he suffers persecution. He suffers accusation. He spends nights cold and, you know, alone and running for his life from an evil, jealous, petty King Saul. And when he finally has the opportunity to kill him and take the throne that is going to be his, and all his men are calling for him to do it. And he spares his life in mercy. And he waits patiently for God to exalt him at the right time. We could go on and on with other examples. But I think ultimately the pinnacle example we have, Christ himself. Now, of All of those examples, we can look and we can see, yes, they were treated unfairly, but we know ultimately that they were all sinners. Christ stands apart, completely without sin, completely innocent, completely holy and perfect, undeserving of any injury or any insult. 
God in the flesh with all power and all, uh, you know, all knowledge and really all anything at his call. As the creator of the universe, could have had angels just come and wipe people out however he wanted to deal with them. And yet, as he is being insulted, as he is being blasphemed, as he is being uh, persecuted, called names, hit, all of those other things, false accusations, what is his response? How dare you? I don't need to put up with this. Do you know who I am? Fact is, is they did know who he was, and that's part of what drove them to their anger. But the only one who was worthy of worship and adoration instead endured insult and accusation. Why? Because he was again trusting in the will of his father. He had submitted himself to the will of the father, which meant his death, his crucifixion, knowing ultimately the resurrection that was to follow and the salvation that it would bring. And so we see all of these examples of power, tremendous strength, tremendous power, tremendous authority, but yet submissive to the will of God the Father, content in the sovereignty of God and in his timing and in his plans. And so we can see examples of this, not weakness, not spinelessness, not doormats, but those who are confident in what God has for them and what God is doing and an ability to submit to even those in, uh, inaccurate accusations and those persecutions with gentleness and with patience and with humility. Because the emphasis of meekness is not on ourselves and then on our own vindication. The meek person has in view the glory of God and not our own, the eternal and not the temporal. And so a meek person is able to trust God through any difficult circumstance because we can trust that he is working all things according to his will and for our good if we belong to him. Piper put it this way, meekness begins when we put our trust in God. Then, because we trust him, we commit our way to him. We roll onto him our anxieties, our frustrations, our plans, our relationships, our jobs, our health. And then we wait patiently for the Lord. We trust his timing and his power and his grace to work things out in the best way for his glory and for our good. And I emphasized his every time we hit it. Because again, the meek person is able to live meekly in this world because it's not about them. It's about God and his glory and his will and his way. We understand that we can't see all ends. We don't know all that God is going to work in these 
trials and in these tribulations. And so we have given ourselves completely over to him and we cast our cares on him because he cares for us. Piper goes on to say, meek people are not given to outbursts of anger. They are open to correction and reasonable, recognizing shortcomings without having to be defensive. They are confident, not in themselves, but in their God. Christian, is this sounds like the way that you have been living? It is the mark of those who are in his kingdom. It is the character of those who belong to Christ as they submit themselves to the work of the Spirit. And so I ask us, is this true in our lives? When we look at the world around us, are we prone to fits of anger or fits of jealousy? When we're confronted, do we resist correction? Are we obstinate and defensive? Christian, God has called us to a life different from the world around us. He has called us to something that is countercultural. And as Christians, if we are acting like the world and clamoring for power and clamoring for authority and clamoring for our own way, something's wrong. Now again, I emphasize We're wrong when it's our own way. When we clamor for God's glory, when we defend the honor of his name, then we are living as we ought to live. And we can stand in confidence, but not with a better-than-you attitude. Because accompanying our defense of the gospel, and our standing for God's truth, there comes a gentleness, a kindness, an approachability, and a love that governs all of those things so that we can stand firm with humility, so that we can declare truth with gentleness. This is what marks the believer Meekness not only recognizes God and his sovereignty, but it also recognizes our own weaknesses. And may I point out, the weaknesses that exist in us exist also in those around us. Piper again says, meekness recognizes weakness in ourselves, but that that weakness in ourselves is also present in others. And so those who are meek can be forgiving and long-suffering recognizing our own ability to fall, just like Galatians 6.1 tells us, right? You who are spiritual, restore such a one, because we recognize that we too can suffer from the same temptations. And so we can be meek, we can be gentle, we can be humble with our fellow brothers and sisters because we recognize that uh, the same struggles and same sins and same problems and shortcomings that exist in me exist in one another. And therefore, if I am to seek forgiveness from you for all of the sin that exists in my own heart, I need to also extend that same long-suffering patience and forgiveness to the, to the sin I encounter in others. When we see another person struggling with sin, and maybe even suffering under the consequences of that sin, 
Is our attitude, well, I guess they're getting what they deserve? Or is it one of humble prayer for that person, going after them, entreating them, and exhorting them to come back to seek repentance? We can be bold in proclaiming the truth. We do so without an arrogance or a self-righteousness. We do so with a humility and a love that guards our hearts. And so what is the expectation of the meek? We've seen some examples of it. We've seen uh, how it is to be strengthened by viewing the sovereignty and glory of God, by recognizing our own weakness and the weaknesses in others. What's the expectation of the meek? Well, according to verse 5 here, the meek inherit the earth. Of course, there is... Uh, a future promise to this. There's kind of a, a twofold uh, display of this. So uh, ultimately, I think in this passage and in this context, the, the final full revelation of this, the final full fulfillment of this is when Christ returns. We understand that those who are part of the kingdom will share in that kingdom and will be partakers in eternity of that kingdom. And so in that regard, we know that as children of God, As believers who have been redeemed by him, we will inherit a new creation, a new earth. There is also somewhat of a here and now fulfillment in this. Uh, And I don't want to presume too much, so I'll tread lightly here. Uh, But there is an idea that the meek person, having recognized their own weakness and seeking uh, God's glory and seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, is not consumed by the things of this earth. is not owned by those things. You think about the person who is prideful, the person who takes their worth from what they are in this world, what their standing is, what their position is at work, how much money they have, the possessions that they have, and, and how they are envied by others, or how they are known by others. And you think about that person whose entire life is built on how they are perceived and what they have, And we would say, rather than owning their possessions, their possessions own them. They are controlled by all the things in this world rather than controlling them. And so when that comes crashing down and their doubt and their despair overwhelm them, they're left broken and distraught and with no future. But the meek person understands that Anything that we have is a gift from God and is received from his hands. And so we can be generous with what he has provided. We can love lavishly, without restraint, without wondering how it's going to go, because we understand that as God has given to us, so too we ought to freely give. And if we lose everything materially, We lose nothing in our relationship with Christ. And therefore, whether we abound or whether we are in poverty, we can experience joy in our relationship with God. And we can live with humility, whether we have much or whether we have little. And we can live without envy and without uh, covetousness. And we can live in peace, Isaiah 26 Three says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. But for the wicked, Isaiah tells them, there is no peace for the wicked. 
And so a meek person experiences peace in this life here and now because they don't feel the need to grasp on to those possessions that they see around them. They don't feel the need to uh, elevate themselves and to elevate their own opinions. They are careful to submit themselves to God and his glory and his name and his fame is what they desire. And whether they have much or they have little, they are content. And they are able then to practice gentleness. When somebody comes after them with an accusation, when somebody comes after them and points out something, they don't feel the need to bristle and to build themselves up and to say, who do you think I am? The meek person realizes that apart from Christ, I am nothing. And all that I receive from his hand is good and is more than I deserve. I got to tell you, as I'm preparing this sermon, it was especially challenging to me. I think every preacher probably goes through this as they're preparing a sermon. You kind of look at it and you're like, uh, who am I to talk about this kind of stuff, right? Um, but I find this especially challenging. Uh, and it was good for me to, to read some quotes from some other people on this passage and some commentators because I could definitely relate in some of these examples. Um, But as we look at this, uh, meekness is not something that comes natural, right? In our sinful, fleshly state. It is something that the Spirit works in us as we are sanctified and we grow in grace. But meekness is a struggle. And I think sometimes it's those trials that help us to see most where we have work to be done. Do humility, gentleness, reasonableness describe our daily interactions in our homes, in our workplaces, at our schools, in our church? Is that what marks our character? Do we see ourselves and the temptations we have and recognize our frailty? and therefore live humbly with our brothers and sisters as we encounter them? Or do we insist on our own opinions? Do we insist on our own way? Do we insist on on being right and being vindicated and making sure everyone knows exactly where we stand uh, on every single item that could possibly come up? Are we quick to interject our preferences and elevate them to what everybody else should do? Or do we respond with humility? Are we gracious? Do we believe the best about the others that we encounter in the church? As I said, it's hit me pretty hard because, uh, well, Lloyd-Jones, I think, puts it pretty, pretty succinctly. And I'll just, maybe you can relate as well. Lloyd-Jones says this, he says, I can see my own utter nothingness and helplessness face-to-face with the demands of the gospel and the law of God. I am aware, when I'm honest with myself, of the sin and the evil that are within me and that drag me down. And I am ready to face both those things. But how much more difficult it is to allow other people 
to say things like that about me. I instinctively resent it. I say of myself I am a sinner, but I do not like anyone else to say that I am a sinner. Do you find yourself struggling with anger? Flying off the handle over every little thing? Is that the mark? Is that the character that Christ has called us to? Do you find yourself full of anxiety, struggling with uh, being able to enjoy any sort of peace? Is that how God would have us live? Holding on to those things? Or has he not invited us to cast our cares on him? As I said, trouble and tribulation often reveal what we truly are not just what we think we are. And I think in the last few years, we've probably had one major event that has tested us as individuals, as a society, and as the body of Christ. As to whether we really are going to exercise meekness and humility and deference I understand I'm walking on eggshells here, so I'm going to be very careful. Because I know that there's a lot of variety of opinion around all that happened during that COVID time. And I'm not trying to poke any bears here. But what I do say is that as pressure is exerted on us as individuals and on the body of Christ and on a society, you find out very quickly just how meek we are. And I know, like I said, it challenged me because immediately my resistance, my bristling was there and I thought I had it licked. But the anger and the resentment even that followed can be so quick to take root. And so understand that the meek have laid aside themselves. And they can respond even to unreasonableness with reasonableness, with gentleness, with kindness, with humility. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Again, trusting to the sovereignty of God. So when you're confronted, when you're accused, when you're persecuted, how do you react? Do you react with humility? And gentleness, I thought David's sermon last week, looking at those three Hebrew young men, as they faced down that command to bow before the idol and refused and faced the consequences of the fiery furnace, 
They didn't hand out flyers to tell everybody how wrong the king was. They didn't decide, hey, as, as provincial governors, we're going to lead an insurrection to show everybody uh, what needs to be done. They followed as far as they could. And when the line was crossed, where there was sin that was going to be committed, they drew that line and humbly submitted to the consequences of it with grace and gentleness. It fight off anybody. They submitted themselves, knowing that God ultimately would vindicate them however he chose and however he saw fit. So Christian, when you run into that fellow believer who confronts you over your sin, as we from time to time have to do in a church body, how do you react? Are you gracious? Are you thankful? Do you appreciate that confrontation? And do you search inwardly your heart and pray and ask God to help you in those areas? Or do you bristle and defend yourself and point out, yeah, well, that might be my problem, but let me tell you how many you've got. Meekness, the meekness we are called to, takes those and is willing to absorb that confrontation so that God might be glorified as we grow in our sanctification. Anger, hostility, bitterness, if these have been your life, repent, confess it, turn from it. And look at the sovereignty of God. Trust in that sovereignty. Cast your cares on him. And exercise that humble, gracious meekness that God has called you to. Psalm 37, I think, gives us a good, and we're going to close with this. I want to kind of just give us a little bit of the approach. You can turn if you want. Psalm 37. We won't read the entire psalm, but I think as we look at this, we're going to see the attitude of a meek person as they are experiencing persecution. And the mindset that will help us as we deal with conflict, as we deal with false accusations, as we deal with any sort of persecution or struggle, this mindset can help as we encounter those things. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Here's a perspective. Verse 2, For they will fade, soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Instead, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Again, David is entrusted. He's not envying the wicked. He's understanding. He's got a good perspective. And he's trusting his way and everything else that God will ultimately vindicate uh, himself and also David. 
Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him, verse 7. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Get rid of it. You're angry? Deal with it. Surrender your will to God. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked shall be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Let's pray. Father, we're, again, we're very grateful for all that you have done for us. And God, we ask that you would help us to search our hearts. Help us to really open ourselves up to your spirit and letting you examine us. Lord, if we have been angry, if we have harbored bitterness, if we have been uh, quick to justify ourselves, if we have relied on any self-righteousness, I pray God deliver us from these things. Lord, help us to walk in Christ-likeness with a humility, with a gentleness towards our fellow believers but to those who are out in this world, understanding that, Lord, they are captive to sin. And so, Lord, help us to have compassion, grace, mercy. When we are accused, help us to respond with love and gentleness. Help us to be strong in our standing for the truth but help us also to discern truth from our own preferences. Lord, help us not to mask our self-righteousness or our own comfort under the guise of defending your honor. Lord, help us to know the difference. Help us to know your word so that we can stand firm in what you have commanded. Lord, help us again to just do so with love, kindness, Lord, without any bitterness or anger being displayed. Thank you for the example of Christ. Lord, unimaginable to me that he would endure such accusation, such insult. And yet, Lord, you endured those things for the sake of redemption for the sake of saving a people who are unworthy, but that you have made worthy. God, we are so grateful that you would humble yourself to death, even death on a cross. And Lord, we are so grateful for the resurrection power displayed whereby you are exalted. And we trust in your sovereign plan and in your sovereign guidance So, Lord, deliver us from anger and anxiety and help us to walk in humility. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.